over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Jonah is a story that, for the most part, is relegated to a whale's tale for children. There are all kinds of children's books that parallel this story. It's a delightful story in some respects. But it's also somewhat ridiculed and dismissed by scholars, mainly because they cannot abide a man being swallowed by a large fish or a whale, as the King James English called it, and survive. And so scholars have worked overtime, not merely to dismiss the miracle to reinterpret the story, but to allegorize the account and completely change it. G. Campbell Morgan wrote that men have been looking so hard at the great fish they have failed to see the great God. And it's a good reminder of how the world looks at the Bible and how we want to read the Scripture as God's living Word. Beyond the fish, you have Jonah, you have Nahum, you have Isaiah and Hezekiah in the Old Testament history. The Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian Kingdom was in conflict with Israel. And again, I've mentioned this many, many times. If you go to London, to the British Museum of Natural History over there, you can see the Assyrian section and the Sennacherib tablets, the prisms, all these artifacts they've just uncovered are the parallel account, which include the story of Nineveh. And so these are real historical places. The, the Assyrian archaeology and Assyrian writings confirm and endorse what the Bible already teaches. So this is something you're not going to hear in your ancient uh, civilization courses in college more than likely. Uh, ancient Nineveh was a real city. It's across the river from what we call Mosul, Iraq today. And I've had, uh, when we were in D.C., we had friends that were deployed over there and they took pictures of the area that would have been ancient Nineveh. So this is a real historical city. It's a real place. It's a real account. And it should give you confidence in the Bible. Uh, Nineveh was a famous city and God sends his prophet Jonah to warn of the impending doom. And you know the story already. Jonah tries to escape, and that's how the story unfolds. I want to look at five major points that are also lessons. This is not a hard passage to, uh, to, to apply in our lives. Let's jump right in. The first one is that we cannot escape God's presence. We cannot escape God's presence. Let me read the first three verses of Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down in, into it uh, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord." So we cannot escape God's presence, but Jonah certainly tries. In verse, in the verse, I want you to notice three verbs. I've underlined them as best we can in the slide. But you've got arise, go, and cry against. These are the three primary verbs God is telling. That's the message. I want you to go there. I want you to get up and go and tell them this. The reason is that if they don't repent, 
they're going to face wrath. They're going to face doom is going to come. Jonah, of course, disobeys his commission. Um, prophets had an unenviable job. Uh, other than Isaiah's uh, post-cleansing of his lips, here I am, send me, most prophets wanted nothing to do with it. You think of Moses' resistance, Elijah's, Jeremiah, they did not want this job. Jonah's job is even more complicated because he's going into enemy territory. This isn't his own people, so to speak. It's not Israel or Judah. He's going into Assyria. He's going into a culture that hates God, that hates the Jew. So his uh, was a much even worse unenviable uh, job than most of the prophets had. And of course he flatly disobeys and doesn't want to do this. But notice this language of this unique call that God gives him. He, he was to arise, go, and cry against. And what does he do? He arises, he goes down to Nineveh. Go, he flees. And went down, he goes down further and down further into the boat. So the, the verb language is to, to make this story easy to remember. You're supposed to go, arise, go and do these things? No, I'm going to go the other way and I'm going to go down, down, down. Which is exactly what the story teaches us. And again, three times the presence of the Lord is mentioned in two verses. Verse 10 and in verse 3 of chapter 1. You cannot get away from God. What was Jonah thinking? I don't know. Um, you, you nor I have been given instructions that are this specific to go do something and you know to be a prophet to a culture or a country or a neighborhood, obviously. But um, if we love him, we're to obey him. And so I don't want to be hard on Jonah. I think Jonah's probably in you know end of the story. Who knows what he learned? Fast forward. But he's a human being, and God chose him as an agent to do these things. When you and I know the right thing to do and we don't do it, we call it sin. But Western Christianity has gotten really good at blowing foam over our sins, making light of what we do. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote, when you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you're going, and you always pay your own fare. But when you go the Lord's way, you always get to where you're going, and He pays the fare. It's that simple. Do we run to obedience or do we run away? Somehow you and I have got to get wrong thinking, clear of wrong thinking, and understand that obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than repentance and forgiveness. Uh, do you and I run to obey or do we avoid, dodge, and escape? That's the, that's the simple truth. It hasn't changed since Jonah's time. When you ask your kids to do something, what do you want them to say? Oh, Father of mine, I will eagerly do this for you. What else could I do, oh, Father of mine? Mother, how can I help you today? How can I lighten your load today, Mother? You know, would you help clean, clean, clear the dishes? A big fight about clearing the dishes at dinner time when your child, you know, when they're younger and you're teaching, help, help, we need to help. Running to obedience is a whole lot more joyful for everybody. Why do we as adults resist? Psalm 139.7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Rhetorical question, answer, nowhere. We cannot escape God's presence. Secondly, we cannot thwart God's sovereignty. We cannot thwart God's sovereignty. And to summarize chapter 1, verses 4 to 17, uh, Jonah's goal, obviously, to flee proves futile. In verse 4, the Lord 
hurled a great wind and a great storm. The sailors fear, they cry out to their gods, plural. Uh, they go to drastic measures of jettisoning the cargo to lighten the load of the ship because it's taking on water. And all this a while, Jonah is what? Asleep, which is remarkable in and of itself. By the way, you know the parallel here with Christ in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting how people can sometimes miss that. Uh, But the captain is desperate, and in verse 6, he wakes Jonah up. How is it that you are sleeping? Get up. Arise, go down. Get up and call on your God, and perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Was God concerned about them? Was God concerned about Jonah? Is God concerned about you? Don't miss Yahweh controls the wind, he controls the storm, and he even controls the outcome of when they cast lots. The sovereign is at work even in the midst of a fallen, broken, sinful context. The sailors are more concerned about Jonah than Jonah is for himself, which is pretty striking. Because he's supposed to go preach the gospel, we would say, quote unquote, to Nineveh, and instead he runs to try to hide. The sailors expend all the human resources they have, and then it gets desperate, and then we pray. Nothing new there either. We'll go to the doctor, let's do all we can, pray. Well, when it gets really that bad, we'll pray. When, there's, when I can't fix it myself, then I'll pray. The human condition hasn't changed. Um, verse uh, 16, then the men feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice. They, they're going to throw Jonah over, obviously. Uh, and the Lord, and they made vows. And we would call this saving faith, essentially, that they have, they have come to embrace this is the true God. Obviously, our gods didn't work, uh, but this worked, so they're going to make this response. Uh, the fabric of the story is masterful. Jonah refuses to obey, but God, uh, he can't escape from God. And it's a bit humorous that you can't escape from God's sovereignty. But we try. Um, years ago, Sin and I had a Bible study in our home, and we were, it was back when we lived in the Virginia and D.C. area, and uh, we were going through this uh, program with uh, some couples, some friends, about eight couples. And uh, I remember one night we came in, and we would always review, you know, last week, what did you learn in your study during the week? And this guy came up with this line. He goes, no one can thwart God's plan for my life. And at first I thought, I don't know if I buy that. And the more I thought about it, well, he's exactly right. And I've amended it. No one or nothing can affect God's will for your life. Now, we can muck things up. We can choose to live in sin. We can make matters worse for ourselves. And we can affect and injure other people around us. That's not going to stop God's ultimate plan, which is pretty startling. And, and even I can still remember that study. I can remember, you know, I have these memories. I can remember sitting in my living room back in our den, back in our house in Virginia, and I remember when he said that, and I wrote it down in front of my Bible. A friend of ours called, named Christian Pinkston, and, I, and I've quoted him ever since. No one, nothing can thwart God's will for your life. Even in our disobedience, our negligence, our rebellion, our outright shaking our fist, God's plan won't be hindered. Are there consequences to sin? Yes. Can we affect other people and hurt them? Yes. God's plan is to stop. Like the oracle said, that'll bake your noodle. (laughs) This stuff is hard to wrap our thinking around. Sin cannot thwart God's sovereign plan. Uh, Thirdly, so we've got we cannot escape God's presence. Secondly, we cannot thwart God's sovereignty. Third, we can learn much even after we sin and are forgiven. 
Now, Jonah chapter 2 is where readers and scholars will dismiss the book or call it children's literature, and essentially um, they will say, you know, this couldn't happen. I mean, obviously, how did Jonah write this when he's in a fish? And so we have this depiction. I can't prove it, but I think Disney's Pinocchio, when Geppetto and Pinocchio are inside Monstro, and they got the little table and a lamp and the quill and writing that and sitting there. You know, that probably isn't the image we want here. Um, but that's interesting that they made fun out of that. And others go with Ripley's Believe It or Not. There are quote-unquote stories you can find, and of course if it's online it's true, there are stories online where uh, men have been swallowed whole by a fish and regurgitated up and they're alive. Um, again, it's shrink-wrapped. They're not you know, walking around stretching their legs doing calisthenics. They're, they're inside a fish's stomach. Now, Either one of those to me falls flat. It doesn't matter. How, how do we organize this to say, do we, do we explain it away with science that it could happen or do we see it as supernatural? And that's the rub of every miracle. Why is it scholars aren't upset about the fact that he controls the wind, hurled a great storm, appointed a worm, but we have trouble with the fish? And it's, it's that drop off on the ledge, just like Christ's miracles when people uh, get upset with me because I believe in a literal six-day creation. They go, no, uh, you know, science and, and the Bible align is billions and billions of years old. And I, I'll say, okay, uh, did Jesus turn water into wine, yes or no? Yeah. Did he give a congenitally blind person a pair of new eyes? Yeah. Did he walk on water? Yeah. Did he come every, yeah. They don't have any problem with that. So, so if, if you believe any of those, you have violated the laws of science and nature. You can't turn water into wine, much less if it was grape juice. It would take years to ferment and age and become a delicious wine. You can't do anything instantly or you're breaking the laws of nature. If he heals a congenitally blind person, he's not sending him to therapy and having surgery and taking drugs and therapies and whatever. He touched him and he got a new set of eyes. Christ can, if he can handle uh, creation, if he can handle a new set of eyes, if he can turn water into wine, I think he can handle somebody being swallowed by a fish. It's easy to say, oh yeah, he could bring the wind, he could bring the worm, he could, but not, this couldn't happen. So it's just interesting how we get to these places. Well, no, God could, the Bible's not true. Eh, you know, you have to make your own decisions, but I'm going to trust that the sovereign creator of the universe could handle a fish swallowing a guy. Not that big of a deal to me if he can do all that. The same God who created the universe, who overcame death, who forgives sin, is the same God who could easily dispatch a fish to swallow a man and spit him out three days later. Now if you study Jonah chapter 2, um, if you circle the I, my, me, and you, your in Jonah 2, that page will jump off when you read it. Because you see the I, me, my orientation versus you, your orientation in a wonderful picture. Obviously Jonah didn't write this while he was in the belly of the fish. He wrote it post-experience, which for those Bible critics who use that argument, I go, the whole Bible was written after the fact. It was never real-time reporting. You know, Jesus said this, and eyewitness news, you know, and here's the video, gone viral. It didn't happen. At some point later, these stories are recorded. So that's a, that's a fool's argument, but it's an argument people will use. It's really a psalm, and it's Jonah's psalm, and it's a lament psalm. And in chapter 2, verse 1, and in chapter 4, verse 2 are the only time you find the word prayer. 
chapter 2, verse 1, then Jonah prayed. Chapter 4, verse 2, he prayed. Only times he calls out to God, and both of them are laments. He's unhappy. He's complaining with what's going on, and he wants God to help him. And isn't that the case? When I have a problem, that's when I call on God. When things aren't working the way I want them, that's when I whine. We we call it the lament in Hebrew. It's the lament psalms. They're really whining and complaining songs. Oh, Lord, how long? How long will the the wicked prosper and the righteous righteous be affected? You know, it's it's a really self-centered psalm. But I love it because it also allows us to be honest with God. And he knows these things already. It's not like we're surprising him, right? Let me read Jonah 2, the first few verses, 1 through 6. I'll emphasize the pronouns. I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the... Interesting, he attributes that to God's hand. He doesn't attribute the fact that he's the one that ran away that caused the problem, right? All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said... I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, and this is interesting, this is the turn of the psalm, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great depth, uh, the great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord, my God. Now, another parallel in this book, and this book is exhaustive if you want to get into it. It's something, once you start, you'll never stop, is this comparison of the sailors with Jonah. And the author, and this is where when you study the Bible from a literature standpoint and you look at structure, it is, a, it is an endless study in and of itself if you like literature or studying or puzzles. And this is one simple illustration. Look at the comparisons and contrasts. In chapter 1, verse 4, the sailors, the crisis is on the sea. But in Jonah's experience, chapter 2, verses 3 to to 6, the crisis is in the sea. In chapter 1 to 14, they pray to Yahweh because they're so desperate. In chapter 2, verses 2 and 7, Jonah finally prays to Yahweh after he's in trouble, by the way. In chapter 1, verse 15, the sailors are delivered. In chapter 2, verse uh, 6, Jonah is delivered. In chapter 1, verse 16, they offer sacrifice and vows, which, by the way, is another way of saying they worship Yahweh. And then Jonah, of course, in chapter, nine, chapter 2, verse 9, will sacrifice and vows. He will worship Yahweh. And he's talking about a future time. If I get out of this alive, of course, it's written after the fact, right? But how he felt in that experience, there's a day I will worship again. And that's what he looked forward to. Well, let's personalize this. What, what do you and I learn after we sin? What, what's the, you know... God forgives us, that's nice. But what do we learn out of this experience? While Jonah is thankful for his deliverance, I don't see any sign of repentance. Not in the book. I can't know the man's life and heart, but I don't see anything in the text that talks about what he learned and how he changed. In fact, as we already know the end of the story too well, it doesn't turn out that well. Not to put too fine a point on it, but is your, is my Christian life all about me? Be brutally honest with yourself and the Lord. Is your walk with Christ, I, me, my? I'm going to guess it is for a lot of us. we got to grow up. You remember the toddler's creed? If I want it, it's mine. 
If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If we're building something, all the pieces are mine. If it just looks like mine, it's mine. If I think it's mine, it's mine. If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. Once it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else, no matter what. Anyone who has raised a toddler knows this. Now, not to be too indelicate, but can we modify this and call it the Christian creed? If I want it, I expect you to give it. If I have it, I want to keep it. If I want more, I expect you to give it to me. If you have it, I want you to give it to me. If I had it and want it back, you have to give it to me. If I'm involved in something, it's got to all be about me. And I hope you know me well enough to know I'm not um, a shame and guilt motivating person. But I live here too, guys. My Christian life can be I, me, my real easily. And part of growing up from the toddler's creed is to say, no, certainly he cares about us. And I'm not saying it's self-deprecation or self-denial or, you know, the monastic period was an epic failure for a whole host of reasons. But the Western mindset of our passions, our business, our children, uh, the way we raise our family, and hear me carefully, I love Christian families who are raising their kids right. It, it makes my heart swell and wish I could do it over. Not really, I don't want to go back to those years. Uh, but you know, oh, the, oh, that I could learn the things that I did wrong, you know, and I watch other people parent, I go, they're phenomenal parents. And you know, all that I love about the family, the family can become an idol. Please hear me carefully on that. The family can become an idol. Now, I'm not saying we don't do those things, but it's got to be for a greater purpose than I, me, my. It's got to be that we're serving Christ with this. It's got to be that we're, we're focused on something future. Well, um, one of the things I've learned in my Christian experience is when I lose perspective on history, when I'm focused on my own comfort, when I begin thinking about how something affects me first, I need a recalibration. And I need to be able to come back and say, okay, Lord, um, I need help. And that's what I love about forgiveness of sin. He's ready to help. He's always willing to help you and me. Uh, We can learn a lot from our sin and from our forgiveness. He died not merely to make us happy, but he died to make us holy. And he died to free us from our sin and to live our lives as a thank you back to God. I remember asking Larry Moyer, a dear friend of mine years ago, who was an evangelist, I said, Larry, when you define the Christian life, and we're always getting the works and legalism and all these kind of things, we're always, you know, how do we live the Christian life, and, and how much do you do, do you know you're saved? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, your life should be a thank you back to God. That was a real simple thing to remember. If I've trusted Christ, he's forgiven me of my sins, my life should be a thank you back to Jesus. So when I wake up in the morning, and when you wake up, can you think, okay, Lord, how do I say thank you today? In one or two ways. I don't have to be Paul, the, the, the apostle. I don't have to be, you know, I don't want to be Jonah. Uh, you know, what, what do I do to show that I'm grateful and I love you? Do, am I honest? Am I eager to serve? Will I help somebody else who's maybe a problem person? Will I call someone I need to call and talk to them? And 
take time out of my day to minister to somebody else? I mean, you have to figure it out yourself, but we cannot escape from God's presence, number one. We cannot thwart God's sovereignty, number two. Three, we can learn much even after we sin and are forgiven. And fourth, we can be used by God to accomplish His will. We can be. Chapter 3 is all about that. God gives Jonah a second chance. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. In 1 Kings 13, a disobedient prophet is eaten by a lion. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead when they try to deceive the apostles. But Abraham lies about his wife, his sister. Moses kills an Egyptian. David commits murder, uh, the sin of hubris, immorality. Peter denies the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet those four men are all, you know, towering giants in the in the storyline of the gospel. So, are you and I any different? When we disobey and we're in the ditch, are we unusable by God? I would argue at the time we're in the ditch, we're not that helpful. But a repentant person who owns their sin, he's he's what are you ready to use? If we gossip, if we lie, if we spread rumors about people, if we slander, if we break vows, if we break promises, we met our kids. Cindy and I used to teach parenting conferences many, many years ago. We, we taught family life, marriage, and parenting conferences for 15 some years. And I think we did about six years of the parenting conference. And after a period of time we stepped back from the parenting conferences and we've been repenting ever since. I, I, I joke, but it's not a joke. I tell people all the time, I will never teach parenting conferences again. Um, some another friend of mine told me uh, most of my parenting wisdom came at the expense of my children. Now, not to, again, this isn't, this isn't the guilt and shame message, uh, but at some point, um, when I make a promise to a child, I better fulfill that promise, or I better go back and say, "I'm sorry, I made that promise and I couldn't keep it. Will you forgive me?" I have this theory that if you ask your kids for forgiveness, um, they may never remember that you asked them. But I have a sense if you don't ask for forgiveness, it's marked and they remember it forever. They may not know the incident, but if you hurt them or said something cruel or yelled or screamed and you didn't go back and say, Daddy shouldn't have been mad. I'm sorry. Mommy shouldn't have said those words. I was wrong. You forgive me. How hard is that to say? And you know the striking thing? Kids are the most forgiving people on the planet. Dennis Rain says, children are the last opportunity God gives you to grow up. And I think that's part of the maturing process. Sin only and always frustrates the process. It affects our relationship to God. And here the kind sovereign of the universe is offering the repentant sinner a clean slate and a new opportunity, and yet we choose to live in sin. Somehow you and I have to clear our mind and say, how am I serving Christ first and Michael second, third, or fourth? Arise, go, proclaim, chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. There are three verbs, arise, go, and cry against. And of course we saw the parallel, or the, the contra, when he runs away, he goes down into the, into the vessel. And now the second opportunity, arise, get up again, go and proclaim a proclamation. Um, 
Unfortunately, verse uh, 2 of chapter 3, there's more to this proclamation than just that one sentence. We have to believe he didn't walk around and say, you know, repent or 40 days you're going to be overthrown. I envision if, if you've been to anywhere in the, in the Arab culture, Middle East, Israel, uh, anywhere, an agrarian community lives around wells and around street markets and around trading and city operations and antiquity, just like today in these places, um, you would stand and talk to people. In the marketplace, you weren't on a schedule like we live on a schedule. It was much more, you know, the flow of life. You got up, you went and got water, you prepared a meal, you went to market. If you were a, a, a landowner, you managed your land, crops, uh, herdsmen, whatever you did, that was your day in, day out, it was your routine. And you're going to have a community of people you're going to do that with, other shepherds, other people in the marketplace, etc. So I'm envisioning this city, which is explained, and I won't go into the math because I think it's a little bit overworked, but the point being, it took, took a while to walk around the city. It was no small place. And we see by the numbers at the end of it, uh, there may have been as many as 600,000 people in his population base. And so, so he's got a, a lot of ground to cover, but he's standing in the marketplace and he says, God told me to tell you, repent, or you're going to face destruction in 40 days. And there was probably more to that. And Jonah, hopefully, is talking about Yahweh Elohim. Maybe, you think, maybe he was telling what, the story of what happened to him? I don't know that anybody believed it, but maybe he was. Um, the phrase proclaim a proclamation is the same word that we find earlier about you know, speaking against, but our tr- English translators, for reasons beyond me, always have to mess with these things. Verse 5, Nineveh responds, then the people of Nineveh, excuse me, the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. Please note that verbal progression. He issued a proclamation, which was the same word, proclaiming proclamation. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man uh, nor beast, herd or flock, taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. They believe in God. This is an expression of faith and trust. The text does not say they believed in Jonah. The text said they believe in God. Faith is trusting God at his word. It's nothing new. We've talked about this perhaps every book of the overview. It's trusting God as His Word. He's as good as His Word, and His Word is good. Do you trust Him? I fear, again, American Christians have, have so redefined the Bible and redefined it. They look at it from experience, a feeling orientation, a feeling perspective. They interpret it, what it means to me, what I think about when I read this verse. That's dangerous territory. It's dangerous territory. The Word must stand on its own. And we submit to the Word. How often have you been in a group? I, I, don't, I don't think that's what that means. I don't like that. What this means to me is fill in the blank. That's dangerous stuff. Believing in God motivated them to demonstrate their faith. And there comes the fasting and the sackcloth. Um, this imagery is hard for us to understand, but it's, you, you could summarize it, we're as good as dead. We may as well look like we're dead. That's kind of what's going on here. 
So let's look like we're headed to the grave. The sackcloth is a double meaning. It hides and conceals as well as demonstrates repentance. In the Old Testament, of course, to cover sin. So they're hiding it. They're covering it over. Um, the king notes, again, the verbs, the stark contrast to Jonah in chapter 1 and chapter 4. Uh, the human sovereign, the king, submits himself to the ground. And that's what the verbal flow is meant to show us in this text. Leslie Allen says, his throne and royal robes are exchanged for sackcloth and ashes. So the man with the most power, the most uh, position, prestige, they honored the king. He says, no, this is, I'm dirt. I'm as good as dead if we don't have God, this Yahweh Elohim, change his mind. So he trades the palace for the dirt. The leader of the Ninevites humbles himself, and this begins the national repentance. And from the Hebrew mindset reading this book, it's an interesting study, and lots is written about this, what a national repentance looks like. And um, many people try to apply these things to America as a wholesale country, and that's a discussion for a lot of lectures from smarter people than me. But a national repentance has got to be motivated by the Spirit of God and individuals, not by great sermons and great preaching and revivals and so forth and so on. It's otherworldly. And this, there's no explanation. A reluctant prophet begrudgingly gets the message, and all these people turn and change their mind. That wasn't because he was a great preacher. He ain't no Billy Graham. He didn't want to do this. And so this is where you see the work of God in these people's lives. Um, verse 8 and 9, let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And again, we saw the sailors in chapter 1, verse 14, same words, earnestly call. And now we see the nation earnestly call on God. The, the remarkable part of this is that God can use you and me. That's, I don't know if that excites you, uh, makes you fearful, you never thought about it. Do you realize God can and is using you. And if you don't, that's a really good thing to recalibrate. He's using you. Each of you have a sphere of influence in your job, in your neighborhood, in your friendships, in the, in the course of communication of your life, the things you're involved with, where you live. You have a sphere of influence that no one else has. How do you exploit that to show people that you love Jesus Christ and he's important to you? He's the most important thing to you and me. Um, don't miss that he uses Jonah, a reluctant guy, and he uses him in a way that is... Uh, I would argue that, that, that Jonah is the most successful prophet in the Old Testament. And at the end he's clinically depressed. So think about success and what happens to you if you get too much of it. <laughs> now I argue here that um, obedience may end in blessing. Not always, but obedience puts you and me in a posture for blessing. As where disobedience and rebellion don't expect to be blessed. And don't be mad at God if he doesn't care for you. When you're, think about a parent-child relationship. Again, it's not that difficult. When you and your son or daughter are out of, you know, relationships broken, You've hurt their feelings, whatever. If, if they're teenagers, you learn this every day of your life. And, and so you got this broken issue, and you, you feel the tension when you walk in the room, when the child comes home, when the mom comes, you feel the tension. It, you cut it with a knife. You can walk in, and there's actually uh, cortisol and, and uh, what's the other one? 
oxytocin and cortisol. They've identified, they can put these in nasal sprays. This is the rabbit trail. They can put these in nasal sprays. And if you take cortisol, you get agitated and stressed out. And if they give you oxy, oxytocin, uh, you get amorous. When you walk in the house, you can, Cindy and I have this. I know, she's in another room. I know exactly what's going on in the house. Is it a good day? Is it a leave her alone day? Right? Come on, you know this is true. And with your kids, it's the same way. You walk, you feel that tension. Um, there's no relationship there. When the relationship is good, I want to be around her. She wants to be around me. I want my kids to be around me and vice versa. They want to be around their parents. Why do we make this so hard? God loves you as the perfect father. And when you're out of sorts with him, there's a tension between you and him, not him, obviously. And the relationship's not right. Why would he bless you? He might, because he's merciful. But how much more when you're in alignment? I'm an eagerly obeying son. I'm an eagerly obeying daughter. I want to run to obedience. And I believe that puts us in a posture for God to bless us. I find it striking, too, that everything in the story obeys God except Jonah. The wind obeys God, the sea obeys God, the fish obeys God, the lot obeys God, the plant obeys God, the worm obeys God, and the scorching east wind obey God, but not Jonah. Don't miss it. It's too obvious, right? The Holy Spirit, of course, helps us. And the Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. I think Jonah at the end is is not only depressed, he's guilty. He feels horrible. Um, It's not a guarantee, but I think obedience and faithfulness, even after we sin, puts you and me in a posture for God to use us, to bless us. Number one, we cannot escape from God's presence. Number two, we cannot thwart God's sovereignty. Number three, we can learn much from uh, our sin and our forgiveness. And fourth, we can be used by God to accomplish His will. And finally, fifth, we need constant reminders of God's grace. In chapter 4, verse 1, it's it's real hard to render in English translations if you compare several of them. I'll give you a literal, Michael easily attempt at it, but it's not that easy. But it was evil to Jonah with great evil. It's a very complicated uh, phraseology. The New American Standard says, it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. And that, it kind of misses it. Um, And that's where it's good to compare other English translations that you use. It was evil to Jonah. It wasn't just and he was, he was, it was, it was it's beyond angry. This was wrong. You shouldn't have done this. That's the intent of what's going on. Jonah began grumbling. He ends grumbling. Nice bookend on the, on the story, as short as it is. He's mad at God for his grace toward Nineveh. Jonah is angry because he knew God's character, which is a head scratcher. I can't speak for you, um, but I get angry when I don't get what I want. I get angry when some injustice occurs. I get angry when someone uh, is angry at me. I get angry when something is wrong and it should be made right. What gets you angry? I give Jonah credit for one thing. He knew God's character. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please God, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. Watch. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. He knows God. Slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness is my favorite word, hesed. And one who relents concerning calamity. I knew you, God. I knew this is what you were like. 
Why is he so angry? Why is he so depressed? Why does he want to die at the end of the story? I don't know that we can put ourselves in Jonah's shoes to feel what he felt, but the closest we might get was, how do we forgive the perpetrators of 9-11? How do we forgive uh, people that go into a mall and assault innocents? How do we forgive a man who abuses children? How do we forgive and show God's grace to someone who deserves capital punishment, we might say? Murders, criminals, a person who's left scars on you for this life, how can you forgive that person? Maybe that's what Jonah felt like. The one and only time Jonah is happy in the book is when? Sitting under the shade of a gourd leaf. What a crescendo of a commentary. The only time he's happy is sitting in the shade. Now listen, I've been in the Middle East when it's 120 degrees. I break for shade too. I get that. But the whole story is around his grumbling, his dispute with God, his running away, his complaint saw him in the belly of the fish. I knew this was going to happen. Mad at God, evil against God. And at one time he's happy and sipping on an iced tea in the shade. Now I'm happy. And then God deliciously kills the gourd. And the end of it is so depressing. Verse 9, then God said to Jonah, do you have reason to be angry about the plant? He said, I have good reason, even to death. Then the Lord said, you have had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cost to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, where there are more than 120,000 persons? And that would be men, the way they count in the Old Testament. They didn't count women and children. That's why I say 600,000 is probably a very conservative number who did not know the difference between their right and left hand. And not to mention the animals, which is kind of a laughable thing at the end of it. God's gracious to give you shade, even when you and I are angry, even when we're in sin. And this is a wonderful picture of His mercy. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.